Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, buenos dias to you. Buenos dias to you too. A very exotic opening to the podcast because you are not in Dublin, you are in Valencia, is that right? This is correct. I am in sunny Valencia, except for today, it's not that sunny. It is absolutely pissing it down with rain. It's warm, but it is lashing with rain, as it was yesterday. There was uh, quite the the storm. There was thunder and lightning, which we got caught in on the way to the beach. You think you'll go to the beach, have a swim? It's cloudy, but it's warm, and the sea will be nice. The rain was so heavy, we had to take shelter in a little bar on the way down to the beach, which is much further away than you think. When nice. you look at the map and you decide to walk, it is quite some distance from the center of town. But uh, the rain was just unbelievable, hopping off the ground. So we, we stopped in a little bar uh, to have a beer or two and, uh, and take shelter. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's all going very nicely over here. Um, it's relaxing. It's a beautiful place. There's lots of nice food. And of course, many, many ham on ruffles. Of course. I mean, that was going to be my next question. I mean, have you indulged your uh, penchant for ruffles yet? Have you managed to get hold of some? In fact, I know you have because you sent me a picture of them and I was enraged and jealous. (laughs) I did send you a picture. I felt a bit bad about that, actually, because it was late in the evening and I'd had a few beers and I thought, that's not right. shouldn't have done that. But (laughs) no, I have had had, uh, uh, some ruffles. I've had uh, ruffles a la plancha. Ruffles, sure. uh, solo mio de ruffles, you know, all the Spanish ways to, to have ruffles. Estofado de ruffles. Um, they're everywhere, James. Everywhere you look, in bars, in supermarkets, in little shops. Ruffles as far as the eye can see. It's a ruffles wonderland. Really I imagine is. that's what heaven is like, I think. I hope so, anyway. Just packets of ruffles from as far uh, as far as the eye can see. Yeah, that's it. And so you're not in, do you know what's weird? Just because you're not in your usual recording uh, surroundings, mm. because I'm so accustomed to talking to you, I can tell, like I can hear the walls are different. It's an odd sensation. Yeah, I'm in an apartment and uh, it's quite a big open 
apartment. So every uh, everything's tiled in Spanish style. So everything makes a lot of noise. Um, I've got a temporary setup here in in the the furthest bedroom away from the main room with a sheet hanging over the door, and I've got sheets hanging behind me to kind of dampen the sound a little bit. But chances are people will hear some noises that they're not usually going to hear on on the Arscast or Arscast Extra, and not least might be my stomach because I haven't had any breakfast yet, and it is making some weird grumbling sounds. So apologies to anybody for that. Have you not got any ruffles in the house? I don't know if I could have ruffles for breakfast, actually. That would be too indulgent. Yeah, I do have some there, but for like you, not for breakfast, not for mm. breakfast. And not during the podcast, they're definitely too crunchy and noisy for a podcast. That's a very good point, actually. So, yeah, so look, everything is uh, everything is hunky-dory here, um, even though it is, it is raining today in Spain, which is, um, you know, not what people want when they come on holiday, but hey, what can you do? So what's been, uh, what's been going on over there in terms of football and all that kind of stuff? I, I think probably not a lot. Not a vast amount. I mean, it is the international break, the first one of the season. In some ways, I think is the most painful because you've got all excited about the new season and they take it away from you. However, we have been able to feast upon the glorious uh, competitive football that is the UEFA Nations League. Do you know Mm. anything about the UEFA Nations League at all? Well, from what I can gather, these games are no longer friendlies. They somehow count towards qualifying for the European Championships, but I really have no idea what the format is or or how it's supposed to work. Perhaps you could uh, enlighten me in some way? Yeah, that's a lovely idea that I would be able to explain it, Um, but I'm not (laughs) sure how realistic that is. I mean, I have read several articles about it, and I am, I won't say none the wiser, but not significantly the wiser. Let's put it like that. Essentially, it appears to be a four-tiered league format so four divisions there's promotion and relegation i think at the end of this wrap this set of fixtures or this season whatever whatever, however they determine it uh and i think the winners of each group have an opportunity to qualify for the euros i think that's right right so essentially um Yes, basically, as UEFA put it, Euro qualifying initially remains largely the same, at least until the playoff round. Previously contested by teams finishing third in their group, now that stage will involve the 16 UEFA Nations League group winners, or if they have already qualified, the next best ranked team in their league. So essentially, you can still qualify via the normal path, but if you fail to do so, you're you can qualify as one of the UEFA Nations League uh, group winners. So like the top few teams from each league. Now, the supposed benefit of this is that uh, because teams from the fourth tier of the UEFA Nations League will get an opportunity to go into the playoffs, basically. So minnows will get a chance to qualify for the Euros if they do all right in the Nations League. But Who will the minnows be playing against? Good question. Other minnows? I, or? I think other minnows. I think other minnows. I mean, the, the criticism of the Nations League is that it enables a team, it, it gives them two opportunities to fail at qualifying. So something like, you know, Holland not being at the World Cup this summer, something like that is significantly less likely because if they fail via the conventional path of Euro qualification, they can always bail themselves out in the Nations League. Mm. Um yeah, the main upshot is that 
larger nations, more you know, bigger nations like France, Holland, whoever, uh, are more likely to qualify because they've got two shots. If they don't qualify via the normal route, they can do it via the, the Nations League. I, I think a sort of byproduct of that is that smaller nations also have a chance via the playoffs if they do okay. But it is mightily confusing, the entire thing. And uh, that's that's yeah. the closest to a succinct summation I can manage, which I think tells its own story. <laughs> I think it does. And I do feel like I'm not sure. that much wiser than I was before you started telling me. Perhaps that's my comprehension, but you know, it might also just be the, the convoluted nature of this particular... Uh, this particular tournament or this qualifying structure, um, you know, sometimes they just need to leave things alone a little bit. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe in years to come, we'll say, oh, this was a a marvelous idea. But um, yeah, it doesn't seem particularly easy to get your head around. I think, I I suppose one of the benefits of it as a fan is that these friendly matches, we sort of have the veneer of competitive football, you know, plastered on top of them. It, it, you know, for example, the England-Spain game, Uh, which in the past we would have regarded as a friendly, relatively meaningless, at least, you know, had some sort of uh, importance attached to it. And it meant this, the game sort of didn't become one of those farces where it just descended into unlimited substitutes. I think substitutes are limited to to three, like a normal football match. So in that respect, it feels more like proper football. Okay. Uh, well, look, we'll see how it goes. The European Champions. Is this the one where they're going to have the 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 tournament in all the countries in Europe, basically. Yeah. yeah Everyone's yeah. going to get a game, more or less. Everyone's going to get a game. But then I think Wembley has the semifinals and the final, which doesn't really seem fair. I mean, I'm not complaining, but um, that doesn't seem to reflect the kind of, you know, multi-nation hosting plan. But that is, that is the idea. Anyway, Euro 2020 will be across various cities and various countries. Isn't the whole point of an international tournament, well, not the whole point, but I think one of the things that makes international tournaments interesting and special and different is the fact that you have people from all different countries coming together in more or less one location, of course, as there's various cities in the uh, in the country where it's being held. But you, you have these people coming together that wouldn't normally come together. Sometimes it's great, of course, uh, sometimes not so great when when, when do uh, cultures clash, but we didn't see much of that in, in Russia for some reason. But, you know, if you have it spread out, does that not dilute the fan experience? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't even, I, I don't even love it when they share the tournament across different countries. I mean, we've seen that in the past, Holland and Belgium, Japan and Korea, Mexico and the USA will, will share the World Cup in a, a few years' time. I, you know, I'm not even crazy on that because I agree that the sort of what's interesting is is how the culture of one country kind of imposes itself upon the World Cup. Uh, and as as a fan, going to that nation is particularly exciting. You know, you go to one country, you travel around. You know, I did it in South Africa, I did it in Brazil, and I loved it, even though Brazil is a, a giant country. But UEFA have insisted this is a one-off. I just think... I worry a little bit that if it succeeds and if it's financially profitable for them, it might not prove to be a one-off. You know, I can they they often are led by the money, UEFA. So, uh, fingers mm. crossed, this is just a, mm. a one-off thing. But we shall see. <laughs> yeah, we shall see. So, from an Arsenal point of view, there's been very little happening from what I can from what I can make out. But there was the the Legends game at the uh, yep. at the Emirates at the weekend. Were you there? Did you go? I was there. I was at the Legends game. Uh, it was it was nice. It was a nice day. I mean, I'll be honest, it wasn't a brilliant game. I watched the game 
in Madrid, the reverse of this fixture. And I seem to recall it was quite exciting and full of goals. I think it was about 3-2 or something like that to Madrid. This was a nil-nil draw and mm. a relatively doer one. But, you know, it wasn't really about the football. It was about the the cause, the Arsenal Foundation, and uh, about seeing some familiar faces again. And, I mean, to see Thomas Rosicki playing in an Arsenal shirt and looking, to be honest, like he could slip into the first team tomorrow was quite the thrill. Yeah, yeah. It was great to see him. I, I noticed the uh, the issue with the penalty at the end when he was supposed to go up and take the fifth penalty, but Jens Lehmann decided, uh-uh, I'm going to have that. Yeah. I mean, you don't you don't argue with Jens in those situations, I guess. No, and Jens, to be fair to him, had saved a few penalties in the shootout. And his penalty was brilliant. I mean, he took it and put it right in the top corner to the goalkeeper's right. So fair play to Jens. He... I always think about these games, it's interesting sort of who looks who looks like they could play tomorrow, you know, and who doesn't. And Jens is one of those guys who's still in unbelievable shape. His reflexes are actually pretty sharp. Mm. He made a number of, of good saves. So, yeah, good to see him. Uh, who else was playing? I'm trying to think. Jeremy Aliadier played at right back during the first half, which was what? surreal. <laughs> yeah, he played as like a, a kind of Danny Alves style overlapping right back. Um I think it helped make up for the, make, the lack of pace in the centre with Matthew Upson and Pascal Seagan there. Uh, right. Yeah, uh, who was uh, Nigel Winterburn was at left back. I mean, it's if only consider how old Nigel Winterburn is, he's actually pretty fit. It's remarkable. He's very good getting up and down. Midfield, we had people like Ray Parler. Uh, Robert Perez was the captain, of course. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and he, I mean, had a terrific game. Um he didn't have Freddie Jumberg alongside him this time as he did out in Madrid, but he combined well with... I mean, even up from right back, Ali Adier was probably our, our most dangerous attacking player. Um, right. Who was up yeah, front? He, up front was Davos Suke. What? Yeah. Playing against Madrid, where arguably he had, you know, a stronger association. But 50-year-old Davos Suke played up front. Um, wow. And then and I'm he trying didn't to score. Think. How amazing! I know he did come close at one point with a header. I think a special mention has to go to centre half Chris White, who I never saw play, but he came on in the second half and at 57 years of age and played about 20 wow. minutes at centre back. Chris yeah. White, you know, one of my earliest Arsenal memories. Well, not earliest, but but when I was a when I was a kid, when, uh, you know, Saturday games in the UK were never broadcast on TV, but for a time we could get three o'clock games right. in Ireland. And I, whether it was a, an FA Cup semi-final or it was a game against, I think it was an FA Cup semi-final. I remember Chris White playing in that against Manchester United, but I also remember seeing him play up front. He played oh, as really? a striker. For, for a period of time, he was used as a as a striker for Arsenal back I, in the day. I love so. that when players play centre-half and centre-forward. I think it's dying out. Yeah, who was the guy? I mean, Dion Dublin did it, but the Dion other guy Dublin. who did it, the guy who did it, I think he went from centre-half to to forward and scored a load of goals for Blackburn. Was it Was Warhurst? it Paul Warhurst? Yeah, Paul Warhurst. yeah. yeah. Um, Chris Sutton was another who played centre-half at a point in his career. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you remember Chris Samba doing it for Blackburn? Did he? Was he yeah, just like he, an emergency stick-him-up-front guy at the they end had of the an game, injury crisis. 
Right. Started games at centre forward. I think I think under Sam Allardyce, that sounds like it would be a thing, doesn't it? Mm. It does a bit, yeah. Uh, but um I think that's on the way out. It was there was a sort of vogue for it in the nineties, as you mentioned, with Warhurst, Sutton, mm. Dublin. Um I, I yeah, I always enjoy I always enjoy it when it happens. It's like when you see an outfield player going goal. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than that. That doesn't happen nearly often enough. No, it never happens. Never happens these days. Um, well, look, it sounds like it was an enjoyable enough kind of afternoon. If if you go into it expecting, you know, what you get from it, then, you know, nobody's uh, really thinking yeah. about playing 50-year-old Davor Suker up front. You're going to have the most dynamic game of football. But uh, if it raises money for a good cause, then it's a, it's a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, and I think lots of people who don't necessarily get to go to the Emirates every week. There are a lot of kids there, a lot of young families. So it was a, a nice atmosphere and uh, and a good day. And yeah, great to see some familiar faces, particularly uh, Thomas Rosicki back in. Right, a couple of other... Beyond go that... On, yes. Oh, go on, you, you well, go. I was going to say... No, 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 I was about to say... what. <laughs> We've got delays here. We, we're, we're trying to work around a, a slight uh, delay on each end, so that's why we're overlapping a bit. I was just going to say there were two stories that I, I noticed from over here that uh, involved Spanish players, one of which was Hector Bellerin talking yeah. to The Times, um, which was a really interesting interview mm. about the kind of abuse that he's received. Uh, he says most of it is online, but sometimes it's in the stadium as well. And by that, I assume he means inside the Emirates. Yeah. And I tell you what, I was listening to, I think it was the Arsenal Vision podcast and and Clive on there was talking about his experience. He went to the West Ham game. Um, and I think as someone who doesn't go to the Emirates every week, he was quite shocked by what he heard aimed at Hector Bellerin. And it is kind of absurd that people grown men in a football stadium are shouting at a guy about his yeah. haircut and whatever else. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, the idea that he is the one to be ridiculed in that scenario is absurd. I mean, it, you know, I can't, I can't really get over it. In 2018, yeah. people are like drawing a correlation between his hair and his football ability. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the idea that the minute you do anything different, you're seen as not being focused on football in some way, right? So uh, he has a, a haircut or not a haircut, I guess. He's grown his hair. And that somehow makes people think he's not focusing on his football. He's more interested in fashion or he's more interested in his hair than he is with football. Whereas if you watch the interview that he gave to the Oxford Union, which is still a video well worth watching, because you really do get a good idea of what Hector Bellerin is like as a young man. I think he's really smart, really intelligent, really considered, very focused on being a good football player, but has other interests. So do you think it's something to do with the fact that it's fashion? Maybe. I mean, it's maybe this... Like if... if sorry, I was gonna, just going to say that, like if he was into, um, I don't know, Formula One, or if he was into something that's considered, and I put this in inverted commas, more, more manly, mm. that people wouldn't accuse him of not being focused on football but because it's fashion, it's it, it, people think it's a little bit fey or it's a little bit, you know, it's a frippery of some kind that, that isn't becoming of a of a, an Arsenal footballer, a man's man, you know, that kind of way. I think that's what it's born out of, really. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it is the associations with what I would call an outdated idea of masculinity, really, that that is causing this problem for Bellerin. It reminds me very, very much of the reception David Beckham received in the early part of his career and I think 
arguably more justified because he had like a celebrity lifestyle in a way that Bellerin doesn't. I mean, Bellerin's not married to a pop star. He's not in the magazines, you know, he's not on the front page every week. But whatever you thought about Beckham and whatever you thought about his image or, you know, his interest in fashion or his hair, which was a huge point of discussion throughout his career, by the end of his career, people recognise this is a guy who's incredibly dedicated and everybody who worked with him or came into contact with him spoke about him as, uh, you know, a superb professional. And those things were in no way mutually exclusive. And I hope that in time, sooner rather than later, people will recognise the same thing in Bellerin because, you know, you can be interested in fashion or interested in aesthetics uh, and still be a very, very dedicated footballer. I don't know what people want him to do when he finishes training. I don't know what people want him to do. Do they just want him to... I don't know. Go get pissed and spend all his money in the betting shop. I think that's, you know, yeah, where, well, it feels where it like that from. sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you see the same sort of accusations made of Paul Pogba. Um, whether you like Paul Pogba as a footballer or not, the color of his hair has no bearing on, uh, on his talent or his dedication to being a footballer. You know, it, it's, it is, I think it's a really, really anachronistic, old fashioned point of view to point the finger at somebody. And, and, you know, we live in a world where, uh, footballers are media trained to the nth degree. You can almost tell um, what a footballer is going to say when they do an interview. Bellerin says it. He says, when you do a football interview, it's very easy to stick to a formula. We played very well. Winning is the most important thing. Three points are key. And if you watch any Aaron Ramsey interview after a game, it's it's that. You know, he gives absolutely nothing away in terms of um, who he is as a person or, or anything more in depth than that. That's because the way the footballers are taught to behave like that in interviews. So when you have someone like Hector Bellerin, who's willing to talk about uh, all kinds of things, he's willing to talk about, um, uh, you know, fashion and politics and Brexit and independence in Catalonia. And even in the interview with the Times, he talks about, um, you know, the 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 homophobic base of of the insults that he's got, like people calling him a lesbian for whatever reason because he's got long hair. I mean, it's so stupid. It doesn't bear thinking about. But he, he makes a really interesting point where he says in the interview that football is not ready for a gay player to come out, for the first gay player. And we all think that, yes, it, it is. It's 2018. It's time. Uh, a, a footballer who is gay who comes out would be supported well. But he seems to think that this is not the case, particularly because of the, the the sort of chance that would be aimed at him from the opposition fans. So if an Arsenal player came out, you would like to think that most Arsenal uh, fans would be supportive of him because his sexuality really isn't uh, anybody's business, nor is it an issue in, in any way. But what you would get from the, from the terraces, if you like, is what stops footballers coming out. And this is all part of this culture that, that leads to the abuse that's uh, leveled at Bellerin. And that's from our own fans. Well, that's the, that's the craziest aspect, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying it would be right or justified in any way if it came from opposition no. fans, but you you could look at it and understand it. You could be like, well, I see, you know, why that enmity exists, but for it to come from his own supporters is so bizarre, so bizarre. And I, and, and also, I'm not saying that um, Hector Bellerin has been perfect on the football pitch. He's the perfect footballer. I think he's got a long way to go. And sometimes he's not uh, at the level that maybe we might expect him to be. But I just don't understand the relevance that, you know, his his lifestyle or the way he looks has to do with any of that. It, it seems to me to be completely 
a separate issue and an irrelevance. Yeah, and I think what what we have to point out before we move on is that it, it's brave, I think, of him to talk about it again because it's not the first time he's spoken about it. And it seems to me that this is an issue that he isn't prepared to just let wash over him. You know, by addressing it, you bring it into focus, and by bringing it into focus, hopefully you change people's behavior. But um, the behavior of certain people who would level those kind of uh, accusations or that kind of abuse at him is not easy to change. And in some ways, you invite more abuse by uh, by talking about something like this. And he's got to be very well aware of that. So I think it's uh, I think it's to his credit that he's spoken out about it again, and he deserves. He deserves support, I think, on this from from as many fans as possible. It won't be everyone, of course, because uh, some people are just some people, but uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It would be very easy for him to just, you know, shut up about it and stop posting things on social media and, mm. you know, tailor his, his life to to meet his cr- critics' expectation. But the fact he's not prepared to do that, I think, is testament to the, the quality of his character. And I, I really do think... Anyone who watches that interview that he gave last season uh, with uh, who was it? Was it Oxford? Was it Oxford or Cambridge? Oxford Union. Oxford Union, and and or equally the piece with uh, in the Times. We'll see. He's such an eloquent, intelligent guy. I really do think it's so sad that that his relationship with the fans is as as fractious as it is, and and it, it is hopefully a minority of fans. Let's let's hope that is the case. Absolutely. The other Spanish player I just want to talk about very quickly before we uh, take a break uh, is Santi Cazorla. Uh, And he spoke, uh, I don't know how anybody could have read that interview in The Guardian with Sid Lowe and not just Mm. felt absolute uh, sorrow for him as a footballer, but also as a man. And, And actually, I'm not squeamish in any way, really, but some of the stuff he was describing about the the injury that he had uh, was was absolutely horrific. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant piece and brilliant to see him back. I think, you know, even if he gets a, another season out of it before he has to retire, uh, you, you just can't, you can't say he doesn't deserve it after what he's been through. No, not at all. And I think, you know, some may question, well, why come back if it's just for a season? But I think for him to overcome that psychological hurdle and to be back on that football pitch had become so important to him reading that interview that I think it will do wonders for him that he was able to achieve that. Uh, And the fact that he's doing it still at a relatively high level, I think is remarkable. When you look at just from the pictures, the state that he was in, uh, it's extraordinary that they've got him back playing again. And I think the work that the, the guys he's worked with in Spain have done is fantastic and I'm really happy for him. I know what you're saying. It's a harrowing read, but there's also joy in it too because he is back out on the pitch. And obviously we're sad it's not with Arsenal, but I am really pleased for him that he's he's got his wish and he's playing again. But it really does, I mean, open up that, that period of time when he was out injured. There's There's so many questions, aren't there, over the treatment he received and you know, the the way Arsenal handled it. I mean, as an Arsenal fan, I read it and felt, did we did we do our best by Santi Cazorla? I mean, it, it, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's harrowing stuff. Yeah, it really is. Uh, your connection is getting a little bit wonky. So what we're going to do is take a little break here. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to this um, technologically problematic Arscast Extra. We're now using Skype. We were we were using something else, and uh, it's all a bit strange and weird. The microphone keeps turning itself up. The gain on the microphone keeps going up and up, but we can, I think, hear uh, each other. James, you're there, yeah? I'm very much here. Yeah, okay. it's good to be back in some capacity. Yeah. Wow. You do you do miss the uh, the traditional old setup um, at home that works, but hey, <laughs> what can you do? At least we're trying. You know, I'm on holidays here. Give us a break. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get some kind of a podcast together. It won't be the best Arscast Extra of all time, but it is an Arscast Extra. And uh, and I think that's fair enough. So look, will we do some questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. Um, I, I foolishly uh, got to this point in the podcast without really checking that I had some, but I think I do. Let me have a little look. Okay, well, I've got um, one here uh, while you have a look, and you can you can answer this one because it seems to be one that's doing the rounds. I haven't, uh, I'm not quite sure why, but it says um, there's been a lot of controversy about the Legends match not having enough real Legends, as in Henri, Bergkamp, mm-hmm. Wright, etc. What are your thoughts? He said, a rather shit question, but I couldn't think of anything else. But lots of other people have asked this question. So, well, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think this where this came from is that there was an Arsenal fan TV uh, interview doing the rounds where an Arsenal fan accused the club of scraping the barrel to get guys like Anders Limpar out. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. dear. Oh, dear. And I think fans, uh, I think that's maybe reflective of fans of a certain age or generation who don't remember Anders playing because I think anyone who does remembers him very fondly as one of the I mean one of the most Mm. exciting players we had in that kind of early to mid 90s period Um, so yeah I mean look I, I think Zidane wasn't playing for Real Madrid do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's sort of a mixed bag in terms of who's available, who's not got other commitments. I mean, the reason Thierry Henry isn't playing is that he's still with the Belgian national team, presumably. So he can't just go and play in a, a friendly invitational match. Um, so I, I think it's sort of, it's very churlish, isn't it? To accuse anyone who's giving up their time for a good cause of sort of not being up for the standard of what you, yeah. you deem a legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and as for Anders, I mean, that's very harsh, isn't it? How can you not consider Anders Limpar a legend? Holy crap. 
You know, that's um, that's a fairly, even by the standards of the internet, that is a pretty ignorant comment. Uh, just before you ask a question, I've got one here from Alfie who says, what's the best way to get through the international break without pulling your hair out? Uh, I'm going bald. Well, I think the best uh, way, Alfie, is to just shave your head. Then you don't have any hair to pull out and it'll grow back before the next international break. So there you go. That's a very good point. I tell you what, I um, went for a wig fitting the other day. Uh, not for my personal life. Right. I, I hasten to add. It was for a professional thing, for an acting job. And they were saying uh, that I have the perfect head for wigs. Apparently, all wigs are sort of made to like a standard head setting. And they were like, your head perfectly fits for every wig. And it's true. Any wig you put on me looks great. So I think... I might just start wearing them in my day-to-day life. Mm. Yeah, why not? There's a really good wig shop here. I, I passed it by. I posted a picture of it on Instagram, actually. Some really good, good wigs. If you want me to bring you one back from Spain, I'd be, it, I'd be willing to do like that. It seems like the least you could do, you know. Yeah. Bring me a little souvenir uh, and some ham on ruffles as well <laughs> to the bargain. You actually owe me a packet of ham on ruffles because Petr Cech I know. the Premier League game. Okay. I know. I am aware of that. Don't worry, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll sort you out. I know a man who can get some ruffles. Yeah? yeah. Okay, good. Um, it's nice to talk in it and be able to hear you. It's much improved from part one. I feel <laughs> like I'm, I was fumbling through the dark then. Um, right, here's a question. It comes from Le Jeff, and his Twitter is at Le underscore Jeff underscore Ren. I don't know if it's the Jeff Ren Adelaide. I mean, it'd be nice to hear from him and find out what he's up to. But he says, rather pertinently to his own case, I guess, with Reese Nelson going on loan, is it better to send young players on loan or just to sell them with a buyback option? In my opinion, a buyback option will force the clubs to give more time to the loan players. What are your thoughts? I don't understand how a buyback, if you sell a player, how does it force a club to give them more playing time? Well, I guess because they've actually invested, they've made a, a more significant down payment than they... But then but then, why would they sell the player to you? Well, the buyback is a compulsory clause. So it's like, if we pay... In the case of Reese Nelson, it'd be something like, OK, you can sign Reese Nelson for £10 million, but if we choose to pay £30 million for him within the next two years, he returns to us. Does that does that kind of a deal even exist? It does, but very rarely in English football. It's much mm. more common in Spanish football. Like uh, I think Real Madrid had that with Alvaro Morata when he went to Juventus. Um, oh yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Madrid and Barcelona, I think, are sort of the only real exponents of that deal that I can think of. But there might be others in La Liga that are just less high profile. I mean. I suppose I'll broaden the question. A, what do you think about the buyback thing? B, what do you think about about Nelson going off to Germany? Um, I think it's really interesting that he's gone. Uh, and Because he would have played a bit with us, wouldn't he? He would have played some of the Europa League football. He would have played uh, in the Carabao Cup, for sure. Uh, so it is interesting that he's decided to, to go on loan and that the club have, have, uh, have sanctioned that deal. Um He'll get some good playing time, I think, in, in the Bundesliga. He's in the same Champions League group as, as Manchester City. So that's, uh, that's certainly going to be an interesting challenge for him. It'll be great for his development. Um, and maybe he'll come back in 12 months' time and Danny Welbeck will be leaving the club and Henrik Mkhitaryan will be a year older and there'll be 
perhaps a more direct route into into first team football for us. But uh, you know, it's a lot to ask as well. He's still only eighteen. He's going to a big league. He's going to play against good teams. Uh, it's going to be tough for him. It's not like he is. He's sort of heading off to a championship club. I think there's a level of expectation as well that he has to that he has to deal with. So it'll give us a, a really good idea of of how ready he's going to be for us at the start of at the start of next season. I don't think it's a bad move for him, and I don't think it's a bad move for the club either. I think it's. Uh, it's one that could work out very positively. I suppose the, yeah. the one thing you'd say, though, is that with the fact that it's a, a high-profile loan move, if it doesn't quite work out for him, you know, he's a bit more in the spotlight, he's a bit more in focus because of the, the high profile of the move itself. Mm. I mean, that's true. I, I feel very positive about it, though. I think, I mean, do you think that the the player is the guy who kind of forced this or, or pushed for this, a, a bit like Callum Chambers indicated he did when he went to Fulham? I don't know. I don't know exactly. Uh, it seems that there was a, quite a bit of, uh, of negotiation, wasn't there, when it came to his contract? Like yeah. he was uh, into the final 12 months of his deal, and I suspect it took some convincing and maybe the the idea of a loan move was something um, mooted by him and his agent, you know, in order to to boost his profile as a a player as well uh, before he would commit to new terms at Arsenal. Uh, I suppose it says something, doesn't it, that an 18-year-old heading into the final 12 months of his contract can can have that much influence over over any kind of a deal. But uh, look, if if he's uh, confident and self-assured and you know really ambitious and really wants to develop as a player, I don't know that we can look at those things as negatives. No, I think it's great. And the Bundesliga has been quite a sort of fertile development ground for young English players recently. I mean, recently I've some quite good friends, I think, with Jane Sancho, who's doing great at Dortmund. And Adamola Lookman had a brilliant time, I think, with Red Bull last season um, on loan from Everton and didn't even didn't want to come back. You know, he wanted to go to the Bundesliga yeah. permanently. Um so I, I hope he can follow their example and we could have a really exciting player on our hands. And, and to be honest, with the buyback thing, I do think it's an interesting model. But at the end of the day, it means you having to pay sometimes £20 million, or whatever it might be, for a player who was yours in the first place. Yeah. So I'm not sure a club with our supposedly stretched resources is in a position where we can afford to pay money for players we already have. Um so in this instance, I think uh, a loan probably is the, the best option. Yeah, and I think maybe we get a, an option, you know, to, to buy a player back rather than have a buyback clause. I think you yeah. know, something in the, the what we did with Fabregas, for example. Yeah. Uh, we had the first option. We, cho- we chose to turn that option down, and he's, a, he's at Chelsea now, so... Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a here's a question. I have a couple here on more or less the same thing. Chris at Morfsky Blue DF. He says, thinking about our front two, should we try replicate Liverpool's front three? And if possible, who should start alongside Lacazette and Aubameyang? Is it Ozil, Ramsey, Iwobi? Maybe even Danny Welbeck. Welbeck adds some good forward pressure. And there was uh, another question here from Ben Constable who says, uh, hi guys, is Lacazette developing into the perfect all-round number nine? He appears to have got used to the physicality of the Premier League and even is uh, thriving in it. Could he be our Firmino? Firmino, Firmino, Firmino. Firmino, yeah. Uh, he'll, Firmino. He'll, need some, he'll need some new teeth if he's going to be our new Firmino. I mean, those things are extraordinary. But I think he uh, could be. I mean, 
I, I, I've mentioned it before on the show that I think that that's a role he could play as kind of the the linking man at centre forward. He's much more of a footballer, I think, than any of us gave him credit or, or anticipated when he first arrived. I think we all kind of thought we were buying a poacher and we've got much more of an all-round centre-forward than that. But I, I'm a little bit hesitant. I mean, he was very good against Cardiff, but that is his only start of the season to date, and it was against Cardiff. Yeah. So uh, I think a bit of caution needs to be exercised. I don't think we necessarily know that this Lacazette-Aubameyang you know, uh, partnership is, is the way to go for definite, uh, but I am encouraged by it. And I do think that the way Lacazette has adapted over 12 months to English football and to Arsenal is impressive. And I think as well, we've adapted to him. I think that there has been a, a misconception of the type of player he was. And I think it took us time to find out about him and what his strengths and weaknesses are. And I think as much as anything, we're now playing to those too. You know, we're not just knocking it into channels and expecting him to outpace people over 20 yards because that isn't what he does. You know, that's not what he's best at. Uh, but he's a good combination player and putting people close to him seems to be mm. quite effective and, and quite helpful. And I know the first question said, look, could there be a place for Danny Welbeck on the right-hand side? And it's it's very competitive because at the moment you've got Ozil, Mkhitaryan, Ramsey, all vying for those places kind of off the striker as well. But I do think Welbeck will have a role to play this season. And, you know, even if it is predominantly as a substitute, I think that, you know, he, he does give you a lot. And I think as a front three player, he does a lot of what I think Emery wants. You know, he can press, uh, he can track back when required. Uh, he can do the combination play. He can go in behind as well. And it's funny, isn't it? On transfer deadline day, I think everyone was pretty relaxed about whether Danny Welbeck stayed or goed, but stayed or goed, goed. stayed or goed. <laughs> Do do he stay or do he go? But he, uh, but but had we lost him, you know, if we were starting with Lacazette and Bemiang, we'd mm. only have Eddie and Ketia as an alternative striker. And as, I think, as excited as we are about him, that would have left us a bit a bit light. So I, I for one, am glad that he stuck around for this season. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's interesting. I think Lacazette has played his way into the team and should stay in the team. And uh, maybe it's uh, it's not something that. Uh, Unai Emery had necessarily planned for you know he did seem quite wedded didn't he to the idea of just one up front and when you know he talked about one up front it was one of either Aubameyang or or Lacazette and now it seems both of them are in the team together had a big contribution against Cardiff so uh, I guess it's just part of the process for Emery you know it's um, finding solutions that he didn't think he might have to find solutions for despite you know having fairly fixed ideas about how he sets up his team when a player starts banging on the door the way Lacazette's been banging on the door then I think he's got to stay in the side so uh, yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily see us doing what uh, Liverpool do in terms of their front three. There, there's something. Um, yeah, I don't think the player profiles quite fit. You know, they're they're different kind no. of players. But uh, I, I think that Liverpool front three is is as effective as it is because obviously it's very talented. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, quality in there in terms of finishing and and creativity. But this is what what. How many seasons is Klopp at Liverpool now? Three or four? Four, yeah. maybe? This is him into his fourth season where he's he's pretty much got all the players in the team that he wants. You know, he's he's modelled the team the way he wants it to be modelled. And, uh, 
you know, it's it's a bit soon to expect something that fluid and that effective from from Unai Emery just yet. Yeah, I think I would agree, but uh, it's encouraging nonetheless. I agree, Lacazette's got to stay on the side from this point. I, I've spent the last week, really, since the Cardiff game. Uh, Arsenal put out a tweet, I think, which showed his goal against Cardiff from a multitude of angles, from about 10 different camera angles. Yeah. And I have found myself every so often just going back and watching that on uh, on loop. It's a very, very, very satisfying strike, that particular goal from him. Um this question is from Tony Kent, who's at 2-0 down. And Tony says, your Shaka comments last week about people jumping on his one mistake rather than his hundred instances of good play mm-hmm. is probably relevant to half the squad. Iwobi, Bellerin, Mustafi, Ozil, Czech, Welbeck, etc. He said, I don't recall this ever happening before to this extent. Why now? That's a really good question. I wonder, is it the sort of the way that um, the way we look at football has changed? Mm. Because we would watch a match and we would discuss a match and then all of a sudden we're in an era where you can watch a match and you can see an incident replayed over and over again, like you just said, from many, many different angles. And it can become a GIF, it can become a, a video on Twitter. You know, things become memeable really really quickly don't they so i think that has in some ways changed the 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 nature of discussion of football that we don't uh we don't look at things in their bigger context instead we have these little sound bites or snippets of action through which we judge players and if a guy falls over and stands on the ball and goes arse over tit that's the guy he is He's not the guy who spent the other 89 minutes and 45 seconds of the game spraying brilliant passes left to right, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that in some ways has had something to do with it. I do also wonder if it's maybe a hangover from from the Arsene Wenger era where everything, the criticism of everything was was heightened in some ways. It was in a sort of a bubble of criticism, you know? So everything that went wrong could somehow be attributed to Wenger's failings or the, the, the sort of decline that people sensed we were in under him, if if that makes sense. So if Wenger signs a player and the player makes a mistake, that's Wenger's fault for signing the player and he's contributing to our malaise and, and all that kind of stuff as well. So mm. I think that could be it, but I do I do honestly think that the 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 online culture plays a, a huge part in that. You know, you're 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 remembered for the foolish things or for the mistakes or for the incidents that that make people laugh or point fingers rather than the good stuff that you do and and a lot of the time for um you know the way they say about referees uh, you know you you know you've had a good referee when you don't notice him in a game yeah it's the consistency of of uh what's the word i'm gonna look for here i don't quite know how to explain it but if you're uh, if you're playing and you're playing well and you're not doing anything necessarily spectacular but that consistency of performance is perhaps what we should be uh lauding above all else the ability to do that week after week after week rather than just saying well he fell over or he made a mistake or he got nutmegged or even he smashed one into the top corner because he might do that once in a season you know, those are not the things yeah. on which you should judge a player. It's what he does uh, game after game after game after game. And I think we've moved away from that a little bit. 
I think you're right. I was thinking in my mind before you answered it's it is the gifification of culture, yeah. isn't it? It's gifification. The, yes, it's the sort of uh, you know defining things by those snapshot moments that can be shared. I do think that is part of it and that we're we're all guilty of uh seeing matches you know not even in terms of the highlights but you know boiling it right down to these these instances and uh yeah i think shaka is a great example but the, the question raises a good point he's not alone in that by the way your point about referees just uh triggered me to remember that in the arsenal legends game the real legend was not uh, an arsenal player nor a manchester united player but the man in the middle the man in black Mike Dean was wheeled out for the for the day. Mike Dean, wow. yeah, what a what a treat for the players that was. I know. I mean, all the young kids in the stand must have been thrilled to see him. And I wonder as well. I mean, you know, you always wonder with Mike Dean, is he going to manage to make the day about himself? Well, although Lehman prevented Rizitsky from taking that penalty. As far as I'm aware, Rosicki had been subbed off at that point. So I wouldn't have put it past Mike Dean to deny Thomas Rosicki the opportunity to win the game from the spot anyway. So maybe it's, it's best we were spared, you know, Thomas Rosicki and Mike Dean having handbags at, uh, in the penalty shootout. Mm. I'd like to say it was nice to see Mike Dean, but of course, that would be a lie. It would be uh, a, a terrible, brutal lie, yes. Yeah. Um, have you got a question? Do I have a question? I'm sort of scrambling through my Twitter feed here. Uh, I've got some, if not. What about this one? This okay. is from uh, Piers Moyles, who's at... Uh, <laughs> For a second uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Close, close, but not quite. It's at A underscore K underscore A underscore Percy. Uh, and his question says, good morning, guys. Has your enthusiasm and longing for something different in terms of a new manager lived up to expectations or is it a bit underwhelming and not giving you the feelings you thought it would? I think it's about where I thought it would be, to be honest. Right. When when we, particularly when I saw the fixture list, you know, I thought we were going to lose our opening two games and we did. So I wasn't getting hugely bent out of shape about that. I thought we would beat West Ham and Cardiff, which we did, even though perhaps there are things that were not quite as convincing as, uh, as we would like. I do wonder maybe if the, some of the background stuff we've, we've maybe championed or, or put on a pedestal that isn't quite merited yet, for example. We all go, it's brilliant now that we have a director of football, which is what Raul uh, Sanyehi is, essentially. He is the director of football. It's great that we've got a, a head of recruitment. It's fantastic. We've got this modern structure in place, you know, to bring players through and, and everything else. But I do wonder if we're... we're we, we haven't seen quite enough of their work to consider them... Um, in such high regard. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, you know, I think there are question marks over some of the, the, the summer signings, which I hope go away, but I think there are some question marks over those. Uh, you know, a new coach and a, a new style of play and, you know, the new stuff on the training ground, which I think is really quite interesting the way it's being shared now on on the official website or the the social media channels i think it's quite interesting to get that little bit of a uh, of an insight into things um but yeah i i don't feel overly 
um, enthused or I don't feel under enthused. I, I am just kind of where where I thought we would be. You know, it's going to take him some time. I'm prepared to give him that time, and we really need to see a bit more, well, quite a bit more, before we can start making any definitive judgments. But just in terms of of the simple fact of change itself, I think, is exciting. You know, we, we were 22 years with Arsene Wenger and 22, you know, years of, there were ups and downs, and certainly towards the end, there were more downs than there were ups, but there were also three trophies in the final years of Arsene Wenger's reign. And that, you know, I think what's interesting is that for, for so long, people were fed up of the fourth place trophy, right? Mm. Fed up. This is not good enough. We're fed up with the fourth place trophy. We we want something different. We want change. Now, if you ask people, would you take fourth place? They'd say, absolutely. Absolutely, they would. You know, yeah. and, and it's just, the, it's that sort of dichotomy of, of expectation because you can see it as a, you would see it as a building block, a step towards um, something better than that in the future, right? I think so, yeah, but I think that's uh, it's easy to sort of label that as as hypocrisy. But I think uh, if we get to fourth, it'll be by different means and heading in a different direction. I think that's probably why people are prepared to yeah. accept that at this point. I mean, the phrase used was "I'm prepared to give him time," and to hear that from a, an Arsenal fan, you know, is anathema to what you had heard in the last few seasons. Nobody was really prepared to give Arsene Wenger any more time. We had all exhausted our supplies of patience, and I think the new manager has reset some of those expectations. And I, I do think it's nice to watch football in a way that feels like more normal, like we're, we're more of a normal club. We know we're, yeah. we're building towards something and maybe it works and, and maybe it doesn't, but if it doesn't, there'll be repercussions. And just that sense of being more normal is nice and, and not yeah. feeling like we're stuck in this kind of slightly purgatorial thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We It is something new and it's going to be different and we're just going to have to, you know, get on board and uh, take the take the journey and see see where it brings us. Uh, I know this is a bit of a weird Arscast Extra with our connection problems and audio problems and everything else. And, and what's about to happen here in this apartment is a plumber is coming, James, mm. uh, any minute. So we're going to just uh, call it quits here. But I do have one final question, uh, which comes from Ryan, who's at Ryan MKII. And he said, if you had a dog that could talk... Okay. But it could only talk in front of you. Would you tell anyone at the risk of sounding crazy? So it could only talk when I was alone with the dog. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't tell anybody because I fear, I fear that if the secret got out, the dog would become subject to, uh, you know, scientific investigations and things like that. You know, like in ET, when they, <laughs> the scientists get hold of ET and Elliot's all sad. I fear that that's what would happen to me and the dog. And then, you know, I would lose that dog. I think I would keep it to myself. And then maybe I'd eventually want in one day in the distant future, long after the lifespan of the dog had passed, I would maybe divulge everything in a sensational best-selling book. Yeah, it's a good answer. That's a yeah. good answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you do? Would what? you would you want to say something? Maybe your dog does talk to you and you're just keeping it quiet for fear of all these scientists investigating it. Maybe. Maybe. I can't tell you, though, whether that's the case or sure. not. You know, sure. uh, you know it would be just, you'd have to trust the dog, wouldn't you? You know, 
You'd have to trust the dog not to talk to anyone else. Because if the dog could talk to you, he could talk to someone else as well if he really wanted. You'd have to tell the dog, look, it's not wise. You ought to be careful you talk uh, to. In fairness, he said, if you had a dog that could talk but could only talk in front of you. Okay, that's fair enough. So he can't talk to anyone else. That's fine. No, I keep it to myself. I'd have long conversations with my dog, which I do already, actually. I already have conversations with the dog. This time, though, the dog would be able to answer back. Sure, sure. There'd just be less one-sided conversations. What if the only thing the dog could say was the noise of a bark, though? In many ways, that is that is the situation currently, isn't it? It is. It's sort of like Chewbacca. Like the only yeah. noise you could make is a kind of dog noise. And you could just interpret that. Maybe that's what it is. But but he understood you perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. understood him. I mean, in many, way, in many ways, guys, isn't that what's already happening? You mm. know, we all have that relationship with our dog. I know and what I you're get, saying. Yeah, exactly. We keep, But we keep it to ourselves. We don't claim that we're Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> no, we don't. That's right. dangerous territory. Um, I have got to go because my laptop battery is at almost zero. Uh, the fan on the laptop is going out of its mind because it's stuck in this hot room. And also the plumber is here. So I'm going to try and patch this together as best I can. Um, hopefully it is a or, you know, by this point, you have got a podcast that is listenable too. Uh, we will be back to normal next week um, on the Arscast Extra. So, uh, so join us then. Until then, James, uh, adios. See you. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.